we have confused our means of description with that which is described. We have mistakenly assumed that an idea, a symbol, is the thing, is that which is described. The same problem occurs when we think about ourselves. People say, I know who I am. Well, the only I I can know is my concept of myself, who I think I am. But what about the one who is doing the knowing? Who is that? That answer can only be expressed in silence. There actually is no answer. Welcome to Pacific Rim College Radio, a podcast sharing stories and wisdom from experts in the fields of holistic wellness and sustainable living. I am your host, Todd Howard, coming to you from Ravenhill Herb Farm, a permaculture design campus of Pacific Rim College in Victoria, British Columbia. As the show's guests demonstrate, by doing small acts to embrace more mindful living, we can positively impact our communities. Kenneth Cohen is a legendary Qigong grandmaster, Chinese scholar, and world-renowned health educator. In this interview, he delivers powerful, insightful, and inspirational narrative that spans cultures and millennia and regularly reminds listeners of our interconnectivity, not just to each other, but to all that is. Ken is the author of the internationally acclaimed book, The Way of Qigong, and has been a disciplined practitioner of Tai Chi Chuan and Qigong for more than 50 years, since being introduced to the former at a talk given by Alan Watts. We talk at length about Ken's journey with these spiritual practices and with other Chinese martial arts, and the development of his interest in Chinese language and philosophy. Ken's recall is incredible, and he spontaneously shares with us in Mandarin passages from the Tao Te Ching and Taoist poetry, complete with his thought-provoking translations. Taoism has had a profound impact on Ken's life, and we explore many of the philosophies that have been so meaningful to him and continue to be wholly relevant in the modern world in which we live. To conclude this episode, Ken takes us on a surreal sensorial journey to the high mountains of Taiwan via a cup of oolong tea. I assure you that if you are a tea drinker, this is one verbal excursion you will not want to miss. When I think of Ken, many virtues come to mind, including wisdom and generosity. I could listen to his wisdom for hours on end, and I am so grateful for the nearly two hours that he generously gave for this interview. My life has certainly been enriched by the experience, and yours is about to be also. Please enjoy this episode of Pacific Rim College Radio with Kenneth Cohen. Ken, welcome to Pacific Rim College Radio. Thank you. It's good to be here. It's good to have you here. It's good to meet you. I want to thank uh, Zev Rosenberg for introducing the two of us and suggesting this interview. So thank you, Zev, for that. You have been a Qigong master for half a century or more. It seems like that has become certainly a part of your fabric of life. And I'm just curious how that all began for you. Well, you know, as with any story, it will have a different message and a different teaching depending upon where you start it, where you finish it, what characters are left in, which characters are left out. So let me tell you the, the sort of more obvious answer to the question. And that is when I was about 16 years old, I was attending a workshop by Alan Watts. You may know who he is. He wrote, uh, oh, some 30 or more books and was one of the people who helped introduce 
Buddhism and Asian philosophy to the West. So I was probably the youngest attendee at his uh, seminar at Bucks County Seminar House in Bucks County, Pennsylvania. And during a workshop break, somebody was out on the lawn doing an eerie slow motion exercise. I had no idea what it was, but as soon as I saw it, I felt so relaxed, so wonderful. I was absolutely mesmerized. I went over to him and I said, what, uh, excuse me, you know, when he was finished, I said, excuse me, what were you doing? He said, oh, it's uh, Tai Chi. I said, what is that? Actually, he probably pronounced it the correct way. Today we have the Americanization Tai Chi. It's pronounced Tai Chi, actually Tai Chi Chen. So I said, uh, did you make that up? Shows you how little I knew about it. He said, no, it's, it's a specific choreography that I learned from my teacher. Well, I knew I had to study it. It was sort of equivalent of love at first sight. I didn't know what it was. I just knew it made me feel good watching it. And so I found the Tai Chi teacher not long after that. During that same seminar with Alan Watts, he, uh, the subject of one of his talks was music and meditation. He said that when you listen to a piece of music, you are with an unfolding present. You're always in the now. You don't listen to a piece of music in order to reach any particular point in it. You don't listen to music just to reach the end point. You're with the process. So he recommended that anyone who was interested in these connections between, let's say, Buddhist meditation and music, read a book called Sound and Symbol by the German musicologist Zuckerkandl. It was published by, uh, I think it was Princeton University Press. Well, when the workshop was over and I was back home, I uh, went to my favorite bookstore. And when I spoke to the owner uh, about what I was looking for, he said, oh, that's a very famous, but very rare book. Let me get it for you. I got the book. And only later did I realize I'd purchased another book of the same title, but by a different author. <laughs> it wasn't by Zuckerkandl. I got Sound and Symbol by Bernhard Kahlgren. Kahlgren was one of the great Swedish Chinese language experts. Actually, his research is still used today because he was able to reconstruct through comparison of dialects and uh, speech patterns and known rhymes and so forth. He was able to reconstruct the pronunciation of ancient Chinese. So you could read a poem written a thousand years ago and hear the phonetics, hear the sound of the words as it sounded then. Well, Kahlgren wrote one very rare and spectacular introduction to the Chinese language. There were only, I think, a thousand copies or so in print, at least of that version that I got, that edition. And so looking for a book about music, by mistake, I purchased a book of the same title about Chinese. So here I was hooked on the Chinese language. I decided to read the book. Here I was hooked on the Chinese language and on Taiji at the same time. I found a teacher. I saw an advertisement. Actually, when I started Chinese, I saw an ad on a bulletin board of someone who was teaching Tai Chi in my neighborhood. And I advanced so quickly that my teacher actually sent me to his teacher, uh, Grandmaster William C.C. C. Chen, within a year. And that, by the way, was, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, that, by the way, was surprising because when I started Tai Chi and Qigong, my health was not good. I mean, I... I was, uh, 
I had chronic bronchitis. My father being a pharmacist, uh, later a renowned World Health Organization fellow and public health officer, but in those days he was a pharmacist and people mistakenly thought that the best cure for the common cold was an antibiotic. And so I was on a, this vicious cycle of more antibiotics and more illness, more antibiotics and more illness. By the time I was in my teens, I had chronic bronchitis, I had insomnia, I had all sorts of problems. And uh, I remember the, the look, the sad look on my first teacher's face, not Grandmaster Chen, but that very first teacher whose name I saw on the bulletin board. And I could see he was thinking, this guy's never gonna be able to learn this. I mean, he is so messed up. His nervous system is shot. I was, what, I was 15 or 16 years old, probably looked like I was 20 years older. Yet I advanced so quickly in such an extraordinary way, I, I have no idea why. I mean, I've got some ideas, but basically no idea why. And within a year, he said, you know what, you've got to study with my teacher. And so he more or less gave me a uh, spoken letter of reference, a recommendation to train with, with his teacher, which I did. And I graduated from William Chen School with a teaching certificate in 1974. But later, I, you know, as with any field, you find other teachers and you continue learning, continue studying. I became an apprentice to a Taoist abbot from Southern China. I was his only apprentice during his lifetime. I had the great honor of studying with B.P. Chan when he first came to the United States from Fujian province, learned Taiji, Bakwa, and Xingyi, the three great internal martial arts, as well as Taoist meditation, and Qigong, and then Madame Gao Fu. Uh, beginning in the 80s, she was, I guess you could say, my last teacher. And she was one of the most extraordinary Taiji and Qigong teachers I've ever met, who was absolutely meticulous in detail because she really felt it was all a matter of quality, not quantity, that you could find the deepest mystery in the simplest movement. So it's been quite, uh, you know, quite a journey. I'm still learning. I'm still training. I'm still practicing. Uh, so that's, that's the official beginning. I mean, I had other beginnings because I had some strange mystical experiences as a child that as I realized later, uh, really set, set, the, set me on the path that led me towards Taiji. Uh, I should say also that although part of me thinks, you know, why did, why did I study Taiji? I mean, my parents had no interest in anything Asian. And here's my, my brother was the attorney for the U.S. Embassy in China for years and years. He also speaks Chinese. We have our own secret language. When we speak on the phone, we'll be speaking to each other in Chinese. You know, how, how does this happen? <laughs> I, I, I don't know. I really don't know. And yet I do feel there's this, you know, for want of a better word, a sort of karmic affinity, I guess you'd say. A Chinese call it yuanfen, sort of karmic affinity with Chinese culture and language. I've got it. My my brother has it. Um, my, my parents, uh, no, no involvement in, in China, although I'm grateful they at least were open and, well, my dad's still alive, but that they were both open-minded and uh, supportive. So that's kind of my basic story. I, I do think that one reason I advanced rather quickly is because I had the virtue of what could be called intelligent stupidity. That is, I was doing Taiji and Qigong for the sheer love of it. I wasn't trying to get anywhere. I, you know, does that mean I was unintelligent? Maybe, I don't know. I mean, I was, look, my, my health was terrible. So you would think I'd be motivated to do it, 
because of my poor health, but that's not what motivated me. And when I think about it now, after you know so so many years of practicing, fifty you know more than fifty years of practice, I realized that if I had tried hard to improve, I would have been reinforcing the poor self-image, the identity that I had at that time. In a sense, my not trying to improve and thus not reinforcing the status quo, my being with Taiji as though listening to music is what allowed the music of Taiji and of Qigong to unfold and to have its effect. Only later did I realize, wow, my health is better. I'm sleeping better. I'm feeling more relaxed. I've got better friends. I feel more confident. My health overall is better and better. In fact, it's still getting better. I sometimes complain to my wife, uh, aren't I supposed to feel old? <laughs> you know, I'm 68, 68 years old and I've got more energy now than ever. I was just hiking about, I think it was a six mile hike I did yesterday. And I had just talked for three or four hours that morning by, by Zoom. Uh, my ref reflexes seem to be faster than ever. I can still do pretty good against a, a young boxer. Uh, you know, I am uh, very interested in still the, in the martial arts aspect of uh, Taiji and the so-called internal martial arts. So, you know, one thing I, I do want to say to listeners is you really kind of reap the benefits, the deeper benefits of Qigong. And you could say Qigong and Taiji because Taiji is consistent with the principles of Qigong and vice versa. You really reap the benefits more as time passes. I mean, think of, think of a, I'd like to use a garden analogy. If you know that your garden is going to require, I don't know, I'm going to make up a number, 500 gallons of water in the course of a growing season and X amount of sunlight, you wouldn't hire a water truck to dump that water all at once at the beginning of the growing season and bring in some powerful ultraviolet lamps to give the full three months dosage in one day, you'd burn up the plants and drown the roots. You need to water your energy garden a little bit every day. That's the practice. And then you find that the fruit, the harvest, appears more and more over time so that the greatest benefits of these arts really occur with, I think, with age. I mean, yes. Yes, it benefits you when you're younger. I mean, you can excel in sports. You can improve your performance in virtually any sport. I had a quarterback from the Dallas Cowboys come out to train with me. Well, he did a workshop with me. And everybody in the workshop was going, oh, my God, you see who's in Ken Cohen's workshop. I, I, I follow boxing and martial arts. I don't really follow football. I mean, it's a wonderful sport. It's just not my thing. So I wasn't especially impressed that he was there, although I knew it was supposed to be something special. I've had so many super athletes come into the classes, young people, because it can improve their game. It can improve speed, power, efficiency, coordination, makes you less likely to get injured. It can keep you in your sport for a longer period of time at a very high level. So there are reasons why young and old would practice. But I think, you know, looking back at my life, I think I'm getting more benefit from it now than I did in my 20s. What an incredible story. Thank you for that summary. I'm sure we'll get more deeply into some bits of that. I love how even before you knew 
what Taoism was. You were, in a way, practicing Taoism. You weren't seeking. You were being. You were just being with Taiji and Qigong. You weren't trying to improve or get somewhere with it. And you were also open to all these opportunities that the universe kept putting in front of you, from seeing that person do Taiji to ordering the wrong book and still reading it and seeking out teachers. It's what a story. I'm, I want to know, backing up to when you, I think you said were 15 or 16, what was your reason for going to see and hear Alan Watts oh, at that point? That's, that's thanks to my brother, my wonderful brother. I, I, I'm very fortunate. You know, my dad is uh, still healthy, 95 uh, year old now, and, uh, mentally and physically healthy. My mom passed on a number of years ago. My brother's a great guy. And we, uh, we have some similar interests, some different interests, but back then he had just read, he's two years, uh, just a couple of years younger than me. He had read a book about the life of the Buddha. Uh, it was, actually, I still remember the name of the book. It was called The Buddha in Life and Legend by Betty Kellen, K-E-L-E-N. I don't know if I would think as much of it today. I'm, I haven't read it in <laughs> so many years. <laughs> But he had just read this book, and I was a science nerd. But he said to me, Ken, actually, Kenny, my family members, nobody else calls me that. Don't call me that. But my family members <laughs> call me Kenny. He said, Kenny, this book is great. You've got to read it. It's about the Buddha, about his life, his life story. And I said, I'm not, I'm not interested in that. It's really cool. It's really interesting. Well, okay, I'll read it. I'll see what, what I think. I read the book and it, it had the same effect on me that years later Taiji did when I first saw Taiji. I mean, here I was reading a book about, about the Buddha, about how he was raised in the princely palace and realized that there was more to life than the riches and luxury he was surrounded with. And later basically led him on a quest for the origins of human suffering and the realization that it's preoccupation with oneself, with one's own agenda. It's the, the hold of ego, that, uh, of ego and greed, which are the essential causes of suffering. It's not really religion in the Western sense. But here I read this book and realized in reading it that there was also a way to lessen suffering through self-awareness, through meditation, that everyone had access to this state of peace, tranquility, self-knowledge, that attracted me. Even though I was just a kid, for some reason it, it attracted me. And so I began reading, I thanked my brother. I began reading voraciously everything I could about Buddhism, also about yoga, about philosophies of India. And I remember at one point I was reading the book, I think it was Outlines of Mahayana Buddhism by the great Buddhist author, D.T. Suzuki. And Alan Watts did the introduction to that book. I, I felt such a connection. Alan you know, was an incredible uh, author and speaker, speaking in his beautiful King's English. And so I, somehow came across an advertisement somewhere, I guess in the newspaper, that Alan Watts, who I'd been reading, was giving this seminar 
on uh, Buddhism and meditation. And I thought, well, that's for me. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try it. I need a teacher. And so I went and everything proceeded from there. And you said that was in Pennsylvania. Is that near that where Pen- you grew up? I, I grew up in New York, in, okay. in Queens, in uh, uh, really almost, almost at Long Island, at the far end of, of Queens. And I would commute into Manhattan for my classes with uh, my Taiji teachers. Uh, so I grew up there. Pennsylvania was just a short uh, bus ride away. And uh, it, was, it was a good place for access to different teachers and teachings. Of course, New York City Chinatown is famous and is huge. So there's a lot of Asian, there was a lot of Asian culture even, even at that time. And I, I enrolled at the uh, New School for Social Research for uh, Chinese. I did my first four semesters there. Later at Queens College, I had some wonderful mentors in both modern and classical Chinese, uh, specializing in Taoism and Taoist texts. Taoism is the, you could say, original spirituality of China. Buddhism was an import from India. And Confucianism deals a little more with, you could say, ethics and social relations, social relations uh, with understanding of government. But uh, Taoism is really the, you know, it's philosophy of yin and yang and seeking truth and harmony in nature. Uh, the Taoist, Taoist tradition is at the root of Qigong and Taiji, so much so that, especially with Qigong, virtually all of the literature on Qigong is found in the Taoist canon, the major collection of Taoist works. It's about 1,200 texts. It only appears in Chinese medical literature post-communism, post-1950. Before that, if you're looking for a book about Qigong, well, first of all, you're not even going to find the term. The term Qigong itself was also coined and became popular after 1950. Previous to that, the exercises, the meditations were, of course, practiced for thousands of years, just known by a different title. They were called either Dao Yin, D-A-O-Y-I-N, which means leading and guiding, we presume the Qi, leading and guiding the Qi, the life force. Or it was also commonly known as Yang Sheng. Yang Sheng means nurturing life. You could say that what we are now, what was rebranded as Qigong to make it more acceptable in modern China was originally called Dao Jia Yang Sheng Shu, the Taoist arts of nurturing life, which I think is a spectacular term. I wish they would bring that word back. Today, Yang Sheng or nurturing life tends to include more than just Qigong. It's all your different ways of self-care, including diet, including harmonious relationships and so forth. It's all of those, what we would today call epigenetic factors, lifestyle choices that improve well-being. But it was one of the original terms for Qigong, and it's a beautiful term, nurturing life, nurturing Mm -hmm. yourself. I'm trying to do the math here. You said that your brother's a couple years younger than you, and you said you read the Buddha book that he gave you a few years before you saw Taiji. So that makes your brother like nine or 10 when he's reading about Buddha. He's about 13. He was about 13. Okay. At 15. Yeah. Okay. And And within the year, I was at an Alan Watts workshop. Yeah. About a year later, actually. And did that workshop have an impact on you? 
it had a big impact, uh, both because of the transformative power of Alan's, Alan's words, as well as the synchronicity of seeing someone doing Taiji out on the lawn during the lunch break. So, and his recommending a book on music and me mistakenly getting a book on Chinese language. So the impact re was huge and remained. Uh, you know, later in 1973, I was one of five scholarship students accepted by Alan Watts for intensive training with him over that summer. So I got to know him personally. I did uh, translations uh, in one of his books. I was already speaking and reading Chinese by 1973 ended up being the last year of his life. He died in November of 1973. So Alan, Alan had a big impact. And that brings up an interesting point about Alan's, Alan Watts's way of speaking. I found both at that early time and in later years when I was one of those five scholarship students, specifically to study Taoism with him, I found that after his talks, I would discuss with my classmates, we would hope to discuss the content of his talks, and we could never remember anything. I could never remember a word. And they had the same experience. Alan Watts seemed to, bring, seemed to use words to bring you to where words cannot go. Words as a leaping off point for experience. His words, I think, were as much designed, maybe not deliberately so, but as much designed to transform consciousness as to convey information. Or at least that was the effect of his words. That if he was speaking about the concept of emptiness in Taoism or in Buddhism, the idea that you can find a state of being that is free of worry and concept, that words Words, in fact, are like a piece of transparent uh, graph paper, a lattice work that breaks the world up into manageable units, into words. But the world itself is not broken up into words. It doesn't mean it's all one. It doesn't mean it's one homogenized mess. It just means there are no differences. Differences are an illusion imposed by the structure of language. Well, let's say that was the subject of one of Alan's talks. The net result is not that you remembered those analogies, which, by the way, he cleverly adapted from Ludwig Wittgenstein's, uh, the German philosopher from his book, The Tractatus Logical Philosophicus. You wouldn't remember that. What you would remember, what you felt was, wow, I'm in an empty state of mind. You couldn't quite remember the words, but the subject of what he was discussing, you were there with him. He was truly what the yogis of India call a jnana yogi. You know, there are different paths to the Brahman, to the divine in Indian yoga. Some people reach that path through their actions, through their activities, through being of service, through karma yoga. Some people reach it through, through meditation, through raja yoga. Some people reach it through the physical exercises, through asanas, through, through hatha yoga. Some reach it through devotional practices, through bhakti. But Alan Watts, if I put him in the categories of the religions of India, I would say he was a jnana, J-N-A-N-A, -A, a jnana yogi, a yogi of the mind, a yogi of the intellect, who through words transformed your consciousness.
That's powerful. You also said that he taught that differences are imposed by the subject of language. Yes. Can you elaborate on that? I love that. Sure. So I remember one time going back to Alan Watts, you know, when we speak about Alan Watts, of course, memories come back. I'm thinking about him now, those wonderful experiences I had with him. And I remember one time he was starting a lecture, not at that same seminar I mentioned earlier. This was another lecture, just an evening lecture. And he had a bowl of fruit in front of him. He picks up an orange from the bowl and he asks the audience, what is this? And somebody calls out, at first we didn't know what, what he's asking is. I mean, obviously it's an orange, so what is he really asking? Again, Alan says, what is this? Someone calls out, it's an orange. He said, no, it's not, it's, and he throws the orange at the person. <laughs> so we have confused our means of description with that which is described. We have unfortunately been so entranced by the spoken and especially the written word that I believe it is a mistaken assumption that the categories of language exist in nature. The same problem occurs when we think about ourselves. People say, I know who I am. Well, the only I, I can know is my concept of myself, who I think I am. But what about the one who is doing the knowing? Who is that? That, that answer can only be expressed in silence. There actually is no answer. As the great commentator on the Upanishads, one of the great scriptures of India, as, uh, as he put it, uh, the commentator's name was Shankara. He said, just as a sword cannot cut itself, nor a fire burn itself, so the subject cannot be the object of its own knowledge. So there again, we have mistakenly assumed that an idea, a symbol, is the thing, is that which is described. Whether it's the word orange or the word tree, or the sense of I, that I know myself. Again, who is the one doing the knowing? That cannot be answered. It can only be answered in silence. I just recently had a conversation with Daniel Reed, who you may know, fellow Chinese scholar and, and Qigong expert. And we were talking about this very thing and how with the Tao, the naming results in a dividing, in a distinction. And the more we name, the further we move away from the Tao. And as Lonnie Jarrett said in an earlier episode of the Tao, it also says it's, it's a good idea to know when to stop naming. That's right. That's right. Lao Tzu says, Lao Tzu being the 5th century BC founder of Taoist philosophy, says knowing when to stop is wisdom. And when you mention about not naming, that's actually part of my translation of the opening chapter of the Tao Te Ching. The Tao Te Ching, the classic of the Tao and its virtue, or you could say Tao and its power, because it's virtue almost in the Latin sense. We get the word virtue from the same root, V-I-R, 
vir, as in the word viral, means an inherent power. So the Tao and its duh, the Tao and its virtue, the Tao and its power. That classic work, fifth century BC, starts with a chapter that, chapter one, that actually summarizes the wisdom of the entire text. And here's the part that's relevant to this discussion of words and names substituting for the lived experience. I'll give you a spontaneous translation right now. It starts, the Tao that can be, of course, you know this one, the Tao that can be spoken of is not the Tao. The name that can be named is not the name, or you could say the name that can be named is not the Tao's name because the Tao is beyond words. Now, usually the next line is translated the nameless is the beginning of heaven and earth. The named is the mother of all things. I believe that translation is a mistake because nouns can be verbs in classical Chinese. There's, there's nothing in the structure of the Chinese character that indicates whether it's one or the other. Parts of speech are completely flexible. So I translate it this way, not the nameless, but not naming is the beginning of heaven and earth. Naming is the origin of all things. And here I'll comment because naming is what creates things. The world does not consist of names, words, concepts, or things. The experience of life is essentially ineffable beyond words, yet we put it into categories in order to communicate. Nothing wrong with communication, we're communicating now. The only problem is when we confuse our means of communication, our descriptive medium, with the nameless realm that is, in fact, described. So that whole chapter, I'll give you now my translation of the entire chapter. Let's, let's hear the cadence of it in Chinese, and, in, uh, and then I'll give you the translation in English. Sometimes it's fun to, hear, fun to hear the words. And by the way, you'll notice when I recite the opening line, Dao ke dao, fei chang dao. There's something interesting about that line. Listen to it again. You don't have to know Chinese to know that there's something strange about it. Dao ke dao, fei chang dao. Do you hear anything unusual in that line? I'm actually asking you. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm thinking I hear, I hear dao three times. Exactly. So the term dao, I believe the term dao is used more than 70 times in the course of that ancient text each time with a slightly different meaning. Hmm. So Lao Tzu is expressing through style the content and message of the text. Lao Tzu is saying that life consists of change. To try to understand the world with words is like trying to capture flowing water in a bucket or the wind in your hands. Now, the word Tao commonly means a path, the path, a spiritual path, but it also means to speak or a word. Curiously, it has the same range of connotations as the Greek word logos, right? In John 1 in the Bible, it says, and forgive my poor Greek, in the beginning was the word, but the word also means the way. 
So when Lao says, the Tao that can Tao is not the eternal Tao, is he saying the word that can be spoken is not the eternal word? The word that, been given, that can be given away, that has a pathway, is not the real path? Is he saying the path that we can speak about is not the path? There's so many possible permutations. So what is Lao Tzu doing? He's writing a fugue. A fugue, as in a Bach fugue. Multiple voices at once. All true. The Tao that can be spoken of is not the Tao, is only one possible translation. I love Alan Watts's brilliant play on words that captures some of the flexibility of the Chinese. His preferred translation of the opening line, the course that can be discoursed is not the course. Fantastic. <laughs> the course that can be discoursed is not the course. So here's, here's the whole poem, the, the first, first chapter of the Tao Te Ching, if I remember it. Dao ke dao, fei chang dao, ming ke ming, fei chang ming, wu ming, tian di zhi shi, you ming, wan wu zhi mu, gu chang wu yu yi guan qi miao, chang you yu yi guan qi jiao, ci liang zhi tong, tong chu er yi ming, tong wei zhi xuan, xuan zhi you xuan, zhong miao zhi men. I think I was pretty, pretty close to having the whole thing, yeah. Here's his uh, translation. Awesome. The Tao that can be spoken of is not the Tao. The name that can be named is not the Tao's name. Not naming is the beginning of heaven and earth. Naming is the mother of all things. Therefore, if we are without greed and grasping desire. You can see the wonders and mysteries. If you have greed and grasping desire, you're stuck on the surface. These two arise together. By these two, by the way, means that you can say the naming and not naming. Being and nothing. Yeah. So these two arise together. But in issuing from the mouth, have different names. We can call them both mystery. Mystery beyond mystery, the gateway to all wonder. So there's, uh, if my, if my uh, memory served me correctly, there's the opening line of the uh, opening poem of the Tao Te Ching, which, which summarizes the whole text. Now, and now I'm not trying to say, by the way, that Taoism consists only in philosophy. Uh, I mean, the philosophy, yes, it's important uh, that that philosophy of balance, of harmony, of, as Lao Tzu put it, uh, see the unbleached silk, embrace the uncarved block of wood, that is, accept yourself in your raw, raw wild, primal being. Don't carve yourself up according to rules and regulations. Yeah, all or his emphasis on just harmonizing with the natural world. He says uh, the Tao follows the way of nature. Yeah, that, that is the basis of Taoism. But Taoism also has a complex uh, religion, ritual, liturgical side. Many scholars would say that it's the ritual and liturgy and the use of sacred words that really defines Taoism not the philosophy of Lao Tzu. 
So Taoism has evolved to include so much. It's got the philosophy, has the ritual tradition. It was a major influence and remains a major influence on cuisine, on poetry, on the art of tea, on painting, calligraphy, on Qigong, healing arts, on acupuncture. And Taoism has shown its influence on just about every major Chinese art. Does that mean that these arts are Taoism? No, they were influenced by Taoism. Does it mean that Qigong is essentially or must be Taoist or that you can't be a Christian Qigong practitioner or Jewish or Muslim Qigong practitioner? Practitioner? No, of course not. But the, the influence of that underlying philosophy is certainly there. Thank you for that overview. And I, I like to ask guests who are Taoist scholars, what does Taoism have to offer us today at this time and place where we are in the world of great division and strife and, and hardship? Oh, well, there's so much. A reminder, as with other aspects of Chinese philosophy, a reminder of the importance of moderation and balance, not going to extremes. Uh, it's profound ecological view. I believe that is summarized in still another chapter of the Tao Te Ching, where Lao Tzu says, Ren fa di, people follow the earth. Di fa tian, the earth follows heaven. Heaven in Chinese also means spirituality. Tian fa dao, heaven follows the dao. Dao fa ziran, the dao follows the spontaneous wisdom of nature. So what does this really mean? What are these three principles that we read and hear about over and over again in Chinese philosophy and arts. Heaven, earth, and human. People follow the earth. That is a call to ecological consciousness and balance. We cannot, we cannot change what's happening on our mother earth just through policy changes. Yes, policy change is absolutely important. I'm an activist, I vote, I do believe in policy change, but we're not gonna make a lasting change unless we spend time in nature because people will only protect what they love. They'll protect what they are actually connected to. Someone who's only, only an activist from the computer or in the marches, they're doing important work, but Lao reminds us it starts with actually connecting with the natural world, spending time in the wilderness, reestablishing our roots as human beings. Our modern civilization is just a little blip, you know, started, what, about 5,000 years ago. That's almost nothing. Agri agricultural revolution, five to 10,000 years ago, almost nothing. Lao is a reminder of our Paleolithic wisdom that is still in our genes. I think it's very true that we're 21st century human beings in Paleolithic bodies. We still have these senses available to us. So 
Lao reminds us, follow the earth, develop your spirituality, and pay attention to the human self-care realm as well. Watch your diet, your environment, find a healthier environment, principles of feng shui also influenced by Taoism. So that kind of holistic view of self-care and of caring for the earth, I feel that is so essential for our times. Something else I should say that uh, some people maybe won't agree with, Lao Tzu warns us of the danger of competition, of trying to put ourselves first. Lao Tzu says that among his spiritual treasures is not daring to be first. Humility is extremely important for harmony and for happiness, but that requires a lot of courage because we are in a society that tells us to get ahead, to progress, to be first, to win the race, to be better than everyone else. Lao Tzu advises, the sage does not compete and is thus beyond compare. The sage does not compete and is thus beyond compare. That's not to say, I'm not saying don't do your best. Yes, we should put our whole mind, body, and spirit into whatever we're doing. That unified vision of the human being is also part of Taoism. But we're not motivated by trying to be better than someone else because we are all only just human beings. We're not better or worse than each other, nor better or worse than any other aspect of nature. Here, I think the vision of Lao Tzu merges in a sense with that of indigenous people worldwide who speak about a realm of being all related, that the stone and the tree and the animal, they're also my relatives. We need to remember that when Hua To, one of the founders of Chinese medicine, when he created the five animal frolics, the oldest Qigong choreography that is still practiced today, second century AD, created movements based on the crane, the bear, the monkey, the deer, and the tiger. He did not go to the zoo to observe those animals. He, <laughs> you know, this was part of your everyday experience. Imagine, think of that, second century. Animals are part of your reality. You're part of that world. It's one world. It's not the human world in opposition to nature. It's one world. You're part of that. And when you do these exercises, when you are moving the way people moved who lived in that society 2,000 years ago, you are awakening the same physiologic and psychological state that they had when they created and practiced those exercises. So one of the other great things, going back to your original question, that Taoism has to teach us today is this extraordinarily rich healing tradition 
not only where you go to a healer as in an acupuncture, as for example, an acupuncturist or herbalist, but learning how to better manage our own health and state of mind through the great tradition of yang sheng, of nurturing life. The five animal frolics being just one of thousands of techniques that are still preserved today. We, we need that. I mean, Western medicine, look, I, uh, my, my dad was a public health officer and I uh, mentioned earlier, World Health Organization fellow. And I, I grew up hearing about the sciences. I have great respect for science, great respect for medicine. If I had a, I don't know, a bacterial infection, I'd want my antibiotic. I want to go see the doctor. If I was in an accident, I want to be taken care of in the hospital. There are many conditions for which Western medicine is absolutely unsurpassed. However, Western medicine tends to lack ways or tends to lack sufficient ways of educating the patient how to better take care of themselves. I remember my shock in speaking to an elderly person with, uh, with diabetes who was consulting with me. And of course, I was asking about his diet and lifestyle and exercise habits. It was type 2 diabetes, adult onset diabetes. And when I asked him about what he eats, he said, oh, my doctor told me it doesn't matter what I eat. As long as I take my insulin, I can eat anything I like. I said, are you serious? That's what your doctor told you? He said, yes. So why don't you get a second opinion? You know, I'm, I'm not a doctor. I can't tell him to, uh, to not take his doctor's advice seriously. And I certainly wouldn't tell him to stop taking the insulin. But there's so much evidence out there. I mean, just speaking to you and to our audience, there's so much evidence that through good lifestyle habits, especially diet and exercise, many people can, with their doctor's permission, get off of the insulin. So Western medicine tends to lack knowledge of wellness. It's really sick care and not health care. You know, when I, when I see my, I've got a great medical doctor. He's, he's a great guy and he's a real healer. It's odd that we have to say that, you know, doctors should be. <laughs> but, uh, it's a bit of a contradiction uh, today, isn't it? So I'll, I'll go to him for, for a physical and we always go through the same humorous routine. He'll be listening to my chest, listening to my heart, and then listening to my breathing. And he'll say, take a deep breath. And I'll be taking my deep breaths. He'll say, take a deep breath. I said, I am. You mean you want me to take a shallow breath? He'll think for, <laughs> he'll think for a moment and he'll say, oh, uh, yeah, you're actually right. Well, then I'll move my chest up and down as I breathe because they forget that deep breathing means almost no movement of the chest. Deep breathing is when your diaphragm drops, which, push, which pushes the belly out. So deep breathing is expanding the abdomen. Shallow breathing is thoracic respiration. Breathing with the upper chest where less of the oxygen exchange takes place. If you breathe chronically with your upper chest, your body's going to be oxygen deprived, which especially is going to have effects on heart health and on brain health. You know, the brain is the most oxygen hungry organ in the body to 2% of the body's weight, the human brain, but requiring 20% of the body's available oxygen. Wow. So we always go through this humorous thing with my doctor. He says, cause he knows me you know, and he'll say, breathe deeply. I'll tell him, no, you mean breathe shallowly. Then he remembers who I am. He says, yeah, breathe shallowly. So then I do what looks like a deep breath. It's a dramatic, <laughs> dramatic breath, but it's actually a shallow breath. 
you mentioned that I think by 1973 you were fluent in Chinese. Well, not which... fluent. I was I was well on my pathway, okay. and and I was I had already done a number of years in classical Chinese, so I I had sufficient knowledge of classical Chinese to do some translations, uh, and I was already starting to read the Lao Tzu, the Tao Te Ching, and so forth. But mm-hmm. fluency is always a matter of degree. I'm still absolutely still learning. Right. You were in 73, though, I presume you were about 20 years old. Is that yes. correct? Uh-huh. Yeah. yeah. How, how did you pick it up so quickly in only a few years? Well, uh, and I'm still learning. I don't want to say I'm so mm-hmm. not so great. So <laughs> I'm a human being like everybody else. I don't have some little flash drive that I stick into the back of my head, and now suddenly I know all this stuff. I'm still, in the, still on the learning journey. Uh, here's why I think I advanced. My teacher, my first teacher, her name was uh, Nancy Duke Lay. She's a Chinese woman at the New School for Social Research in New York. And she was teaching in such a way that English was not used from the very first class. I mean, once in a while, if she absolutely had to, she would use English. But almost from day one, we were being taught to think in Chinese. You know, she'd point to herself and say, war, 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 war. And then she'd you know, point to other people, say, okay, you point to yourself. She'd be implying it through sign language. And you go, war, war. Well, now you're learning that's the word for I. And then she'd point to someone else and say, ta, 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 ta. You know, he or, he or she. And, and she'd, uh, again, just through some brilliant teaching method, she got us to start learning, speaking basic Chinese, at first very, very basic, but only using this immersion technique. And I studied with her for two semesters and then another teacher for another two semesters using the same method. And then already I had some good foundation because it was changing the way I was thinking. And I, you know, if, if you don't change that thinking process, it's really hard to learn another language. It's, it's not, and you have to have mental flexibility. I mean, it's, some people say, oh, yeah, but Chinese is so different. It's so hard. If, the other side of it is that if you love something, it's not difficult. If you don't like it, it's difficult. But if you love French or Chinese or Arabic or whatever it is, then it's not difficult. And you spend the time. You make the effort. Uh, so... Yeah, by 73, I was, of course, still learning, but I, I had some foundation thanks to having had absolutely wonderful teachers. Uh, and then later working after 73, of course, continuing to learn and working with some private tutors uh, for, I had a, a great, a great teacher who was a former professor of linguistics at uh, Beijing Yin Yue Shui Yuan, Beijing Academy of Music, and uh, just exceptional, exceptional teacher. With her, I wanted to continue improving my uh, spoken Chinese, and then I found another tutor just for Chinese poetry and for Chinese martial arts and qigong literature, which has its own specialized language. In in many ways, uh, these specialized languages within within Chinese such as religious language for Taoism and Buddhism, or the the terms for movement and posture found in Qigong and martial arts, 
in many ways, you, you almost have to do a sort of postgraduate study to learn that because just speaking modern Chinese doesn't give you access to that type of vocabulary. So I've you know, continued, continued learning and still one of my great, great loves within Chinese culture, you know, besides Qigong and Taiji and Taoism is actually the poetry. I think it was the poetry that, that drove me to continue training in classical Chinese more than anything else. Because that, that's really an expression of full immersion in nature. It's as though if you're writing about a pine tree, the pine tree is using your eyes to see itself and using your words to describe itself that you are that pine tree. Hmm. If you're talking about the, well, right now we're beginning of March, so it's still uh, still cold season for much of the country. And when you're reading that poem about the winter cold, the poet has captured the chi, the life force, the full experience of the winter cold. And you're living it when you read it. It's not just a description, it's an expression of nature. I'll give you an example. Let's see. I hope I don't embarrass myself and get stuck halfway through this poem. Chen Feng Yao Fei Wang Jing Ren Zong Ye, Gu Zhou So Li Wang, Du Diao Han Jiang Xue. It's a short little poem. A thousand mountains, not a bird, 10,000 trails not a footprint. Alone in a boat, an old man in straw raincoat, fishing through the cold river snow. See what I mean? It, it, yeah. it, has, that, it has that feeling. Or take Tao Yuan Ming writing in the second century, uh, the great poet of of, of nature, especially of the pastoral life. His uh, poem, his most famous poem, I think is one of the most spectacular poems in Chinese literature. Uh, many Chinese people have memorized it. They know it by heart. It's the poem that begins, uh, uh, it goes on and on. Here's uh, the translation that Arthur Whaley did for Tao Yuan Ming's poem. Tao Yuan Ming is the name of the poet. I think I can remember his, uh, uh, his complete translation. Again, a, a poem not of winter, but of spring that has the qi, the energy of spring. You live it through the poem. It's more than description. It has uh, qi yun, qi resonance, one of the criteria used to judge a great Chinese poem. It has qi resonance, makes you resonate with nature. So here's the poem. Uh, I was calling it from my memory bank. <laughs> I didn't think we were going to speak about poetry. <laughs> Take I, your built, time. I built my hut in a zone of human habitation. Yet near me there sounds no noise of horse or coach. Would you know how this is possible? A heart that is distant creates a wilderness around it. 
I pluck chrysanthemums under the eastern hedge, then gaze long at the distant southern hills. The mountain air is fresh at dusk of day. The flying birds two by two return. In all these things, there lies a deep meaning. But when I try to express it, the words suddenly disappear. Yeah, there's the poem. Hmm. Beautiful. What does that mean? The heart that is distant creates a wilderness around it. It means that when you are serene, tranquil, not attached in the sense of basing your identity on external circumstances, then you have, no matter where you are, even if you're in the city, there's a part of you that you could say is, is in the wilderness, that we can create a situation through our state of mind in which we are nurtured by the wilderness, by the natural world, no matter where we are. That's why Talia Ming starts his poem, I, I built my hut amongst people in the zone of human habitation. I built my hut amongst people. Yet near me, there's no sound of horse or coach. How is this possible? A heart that is distant, that is not bound to things, that is inherently free, is always in nature. I think there's a great deal of truth to that. That's a great lesson. Zev has me reading the poems of Stonehouse. Oh, Stonehouse is wonderful. A very strong influence of Buddhism in the poetry of Stonehouse. Yeah. yeah, so I'm really enjoying that and reading a few of Red Pine's translations, including the Tao Te Ching. And yeah, it's not light reading some of it, but I'm enjoying it. He's, he's truly great. I, I, had, I had the pleasure of being invited by a Red Pine uh, to his home and uh, sitting one afternoon with him, having Chinese tea ceremony, the Chinese art of tea, served me some beautiful tea in a traditional Ising style teapot. And, you know, I, I, had, I had the feeling that sitting there with Red Pine, I know it's going to sound kind of crazy, but I felt like I was with an old, old Taoist sage that had just stepped through a time machine. It doesn't sound crazy to me. Five, 500 years ago, you know, here I was. I mean, we were speaking in English. His yeah, Chinese yeah. is better than mine, but we were, we were speaking in English. And I felt like, wow, this is, this is what the people were like way back then. He's so, so immersed in, the, in a genuine way in the poetry and the spirit of old China. I, I just love the guy. I think he's mm. great. His, his writings are fantastic. They are. They are. I'd love to meet him someday. What is your Chinese name? And we spoke about that a little bit before we started recording. You said there's yeah. a bit of a story there. Well, my Chinese name is Gao Han. Gao Han. That name was given to me by the Taoist abbot that I had apprenticed to. And 
when people first hear it, well, first of all, Chinese people love that name because it's a very, it's a, it's a good sounding name. And I'll sometimes joke with people and say, well, it's Han, it's Gao Han as in Han Gaozu. Han Gao, if you reverse those two words instead of Gao Han, you make it Han Gao. It was the name of one of the great scholarly and just emperors of the Han dynasty. The name was given to me in part because of the phonetics, because my last name is Cohen. So Gao Han is kind of close phonetically to Cohen. But what does it mean? Gao means tall or high. It can mean high in character, a noble person. Han means Chinese. The Chinese ethnicity are called the Han people. So Gaohan would mean a Chinese person of high character, but there's some other hidden meanings. The Han is the name of a river. The Tianhan, the heavenly Han River, is the Milky Way. So Gaohan is also the stars in the sky. And I remember telling my teacher, I said, well, I'm sure glad that when you look for a name phonetically for me, that it was Gaohan and not Kohen. Kohen sounds a little more like Cohen, but it means detestable or hateable. <laughs> detestable. <laughs> so he gave me a very noble name, Gaohan. He gave it to me also to correct my fate. What do I mean by that? Every year is noted by an animal. Like right now, we're in the year of the ox. Uh, you know, people are born in you're the dragon, you're the ox, you're the horse, you're the snake, you're the monkey, the dog, and, and so forth. Each of those animals has an associated element. So I believe that uh, ox, if I remember right, is earth. But anyway, each animal has an element. Or another example would be dragon. So dragon, I, I know, is uh, related to earth element. China is one of the only countries in the world that has a two-part calendrical system. As far as I know, only the Aztec and Mayas of Mexico and Guatemala, Central America, only those two peoples, as well as the Chinese, have that two-part calendar. The Chinese calendar consists of an element and an animal. So let's say you're born in a water dragon year. Well, dragon is earth. And then you look at what is the relationship between the two elements of your year of birth? If it was, as in this hypothetical example, uh, water and earth, well, earth absorbs water. It's not considered a harmonious relationship. It means the person's spirit is going to be bogged down by how they're living in the world. Or let's say someone's elements were fire and fire and earth. Well, that would be a good relationship because fire is said to create ashes or earth. That's a harmonious relationship. But if their elements of their birth year were fire and an animal that is represented by metal, fire melts metal. And you would need to find something to correct the disharmony in their fate. In my case, the elements of my birth year required 
extra water. My water was being absorbed. So Dr. Huang, my teacher, the Taoist I mentioned, gave me a name that had the water element in it. The nice thing about Chinese characters is because they're pictographic, they will often include within them the word for fire or water or earth and so forth, or metal. So he gave me a name with water, the Han character, H-A-N, has water on the left-hand side. And he also gave me some other advice about uh, correcting imbalances that he sensed based on my year of birth. So my name, Gao Han, was also given to me therapeutically, you could say. Uh, what do students call me? Well, you know, obviously my name is Ken in English and I'm fine with them. My friends all call me Ken. Uh, but students, you know, because I'm, I'm so involved in the entire context of Qigong and Chinese martial arts, I try to follow the old protocols and it would be considered disrespectful for a student to call me Ken. I mean, my own, look, one of my teachers who I've known for uh, over 30 years, even though in a sense we're friends, we get together for meals, I still call her Chu Laosher, teacher Chu. I would never dare to call her by her first name. So my students usually call me Gao Laosher. In English, you would say Professor Cohen. In Chinese, you would say Cohen Professor. You say the last name first. So my students call me Gao, which is my last name, and Laosher simply means teacher. It's a very egalitarian term. It is no, you know, master, grandmaster, this or that. I love the term Lao shirt. It's the same word you would use for a pottery teacher, a dance teacher, a Taiji grandmaster, a kindergarten teacher, a driver's ed teacher. They're all Lao shirt. So my students call me Gao, my last, which is my last name in Chinese, Lao shirt. So teacher Gao. You said the name was given to you in part to correct an imbalance. Is that similar to the Taoist teaching of to give a thing a name is to give it a destiny? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, and to a Confucian teaching as well. What you know, there's a whole school of Confucianism called the the uh, True Names School, Junming. Uh, the rectification of names is it's usually its academic translation that there should be a correct name for each thing and that establishes uh, easier communication. Unfortunately, that was also used as a justification for hierarchy in Confucian-dominated society where Confucius said very famously, Jun Jun Chen Chen Fu Fu Zi Zi. The noble person should act like a noble person, the servant like a servant, the father like a father, the son like a son. But to Confucius's credit, he did also emphasize the importance of having clear communication and the importance of ethics. And you know, Confucius is not, Confucius has a lot of good points. Let me tell you, I used to be more dismissive of Confucius, but looking back at him now, I'm aware of the good and the bad. He did emphasize the hierarchy that became predominant in Imperial China. He had a, a terrible attitude towards women, I think. But he did emphasize principles of 
kindness, of integrity. Uh, well, we do need to address his anti-feminist stance in, in my, my view. I'm not a Confucian expert, but that's my sense of him. And he gave us uh, another means of looking at leadership, of leading by example, which was also Lao Tzu's viewpoint. Lao Tzu, many people in studying political science in China actually read the Tao Te Ching, since he wrote it in part as a book of advice for the emperor, how to rule justly, or for anyone in a position of power, how to, how to rule with justice. Taoists have been, I think, the most noted religion in China for its fight against uh, uh, social injustice. Uh, be, and partly because it's very, it encourages a sort of independent mindedness. There's no, there's no overreaching dogma. Each, each temple has its own practices some, and some variation on the underlying Taoist philosophy. There's a, there's a sort of humorous story used to explain the difference between Taoism, Buddhism, and Confucianism where a government, of, you know, there, there are these three people, a Buddhist, a Taoist, and a Confucian, they're sitting on a couch. And the government official comes over to them, is standing in front of them. The Confucian begins to stand up. The official puts his hand on the Confucian's shoulder. Confucian immediately sits back down because he knows that each person needs to stay in their place that there's, there is this kind of rigid hierarchy. That's the part I don't like about Confucianism. Because again, Confucius said, the nobleman should act like a nobleman, the servant like a servant. So Confucian sits back down on the couch. Now the Buddhist begins to stand up. The government official puts his hand on the Buddhist shoulder and the Buddhist not only sits down, Buddhist sits down and bows. Because Buddhism in China has tended to be, I'm not talking about modern socially involved Buddhism, but Buddhism in China has tended to be apolitical. They believed that it was best to be shirtan, quit the world's dust, not to be sullied by the, by the polluting and mundane influence of everyday life. It was better to seek enlightenment in your monastery, in your temple, in your cave. So the Buddhist again sits back down and bows. Now it's the Taoist turn. The Taoist starts to rise. Government official puts his hand on the shoulder. The Taoist throws his arm off grabs the other two guys and pulls them up with him. No wonder the Chinese government has been suspicious of Taoism. Taoists more than the other famous teachings in China, Confucian, Buddhism, and Taoism, more, more than Confucianism and Buddhism, has tended to kind of go their own way and has been a source at times in Chinese history of political revolution. I think it has tended to be more socially engaged they're not waiting for enlightenment before doing good work in the world. That's also why you have that, that, uh, that influence that has spread out into so many areas of Chinese life that Taoism allows that. Taoism says wisdom, enlightenment, is not just something you're doing for yourself in the cave. It's expressed through the arts. It's expressed through poetry. It's expressed through dance. It's expressed through sports. It's much more this worldly. I'm not saying they don't have retreats and 
meditations and long periods of meditation. But those are retreats. It's not, it's not necessary to be on a long meditation retreat to achieve unity with the Tao. The great goal of Taoism, in, in my, my view, is uh, be in a state of harmonious unity with nature. That's, that's the goal. And nature includes human beings. So it's not, it's not only nature sought away from civilization, but also within the human realm. Yes, thank you. We've drifted a bit away from Tai Chi and Qigong, which is great because I love talking about Taoism. But a question I just marked in my notes a while back is, can you speak of the difference between Tai Chi and Qigong? Sure. So what we're now calling Qigong was really part of the Taoist quest for longevity, balance, and wisdom. It was not a, uh, originally a targeted therapy for this or that disease, but rather a way of creating systemic well-being, long life, spiritual transformation. It has a very ancient history. Uh, the first illustrated manual of Qigong dates from about, uh, I think it's around 150 uh, AD. Oh, excuse me, 150 BC about 150 BC. And if we look at the evidence of petroglyphs and pictographs in China of rock art and other references in the literature here and there, it is clearly thousands of years old, several thousand years old. Taiji Tren didn't begin until the 1600s. It's a relatively recent art, and it was developed as a martial art so that the form is a vocabulary of martial arts skills, which are practiced relatively slowly in order to perfect your technique. You know, when you play music, the andante, the slow movement, let's say of a piano sonata, is in many ways more difficult than the allegro, than the quick movement. Because in the slow movement, you are aware of, and the audience hears all your mistakes. You can gloss over it when your fingers are moving quickly across the piano keys. So similarly in Taiji, the movements are slow enough that you can perfect your mechanical skills and develop enough relaxation and good alignment that you have tremendous speed and power when you actually apply it in freestyle combat. We know the martial origins of Taiji because the person who created the first Taiji Chuan form, a general named, a retired general named Chen Wang Ting, he had been studying a military manual of one of his predecessors, another general. That general wrote a book called the Boxing Classic. And of the, I think it was 31 postures for hand-to-hand -hand combat that are illustrated in the boxing classic, illustrated and described, 29 of those postures appear 
almost identically in the very first Taiji form created by Chen Wangting in the 1600s. So we know for a fact that the postures were based on a book of military strategy, where the author of that work, the boxing classic, believed that in the same way that you can feign weakness to draw an enemy deeper into your territory, where you are waiting for a planned attack or counterattack. So if you yield to incoming force, instead of opposing it aggressively, you are drawing the enemy deeper into your territory. And then you are waiting in ambush. Or even better, you defend and counterattack, moving with the opponent's force. You're moving out of the way, but you're counterattacking at the same exact moment, which means what? It means not only are you in a state of deep listening, where you're totally tuned into what the other person is doing, sometimes even catching their intent before it manifests in physical movement, but it also means that you're essentially becoming the Taiji, the balance point between polarities, the balance point of yin and yang. Their yang, their forward movement, their aggressive movement is your yin. As they're attacking, you're moving out of the way. As they show a weakness, you're counterattacking at the same moment. So yin and yang are absolutely harmonized. This, this is why, by the way, I am in agreement with the great Taoist scholar, Christopher Shipper, who passed on recently, where he says in his book, The Taoist Body, that Tai Chi Chen, again, what's popularly called Tai Chi, is Taoist cosmology manifest through the body. So you have this curious combination of a martial art, clearly developed as a martial art, that at the same time incorporates the principles of balance, of yin and yang, of interior alchemy, of breathing with the lower abdomen, of all these things that are common to meditative traditions in China, it incorporates all of it while still remaining at its core, a martial art. Today, most people are not as interested in the martial art aspect, and that's fine. The beautiful thing about Tai Chi Chen, this recent art compared to Qigong, is that you can practice it just for the health benefits. And if you're doing it as a health and spiritual practice, then to that degree, it becomes Qigong. So you can see that Taiji actually interfaces with Qigong. Qigong for body, mind, and spirit. Taiji Chen, a martial art that may be practiced as an exercise for body, mind, and spirit. You mentioned earlier, you can still go toe to toe with some boxers. Do you have boxing training or did it all come from the Taiji Chuan? It came from Taiji Chen. I, I mean, in recent, just over the past couple of years, I've done a little bit of boxing training because I wanted to get more of a sense of the advantages and disadvantages of Western boxing compared to uh, what I know in Chinese martial arts. But in the, in the school of Taiji Chen where I trained, we, uh, at least in that first school, not, not with all my teachers, but in that first school, after we learned the Taiji Chen exercise, then there are two-person practices to develop 
ability to move in harmony with another person, to understand your body uh, more efficiently. That's called push hands. So there's two person training exercises. And then we learn basics of punching, kicking, and we put on protective gear and boxing gloves. And with our teacher's uh, supervision, coaching and support, we spar. So I did that for years and years. In fact, I used to, hey, look, with my age, I used to hitchhike. Yeah, I used to hitchhike all over the country. And I would have my backpack. Something I always carried in my backpack was two pairs of boxing gloves. Because <laughs> I never knew who I was going to meet. Look, I meet some guy who knows, uh, I don't know, Taekwondo or... I'm not saying Tai Chi is the best martial art. It's all a matter of the person, not the art. Right. But let's say I know someone who knows you know, Taekwondo or Tiger Crane martial art or whatever it is. If they seem like a good person and they had control, I'd say, hey, you want to play a little bit? I've got some boxing gloves. If they, they're not used to using boxing gloves, okay, I'll fight empty-handed if I'm sure of their control. I don't want to get a broken nose. But uh, I've done a lot of sparring with people of lots and lots of different styles. And I love it. You know, compare, look, earlier, earlier we were talking about Buddhism. When you're in a Buddhist monastery and you're sitting in Zazen, you're sitting in Zen meditation or whatever type of meditation. And the master is slowly walking through the rows and looking at the, at the practitioners or the monks it's very hard for them to tell who's really practicing and who's ready to nod off and is basically already dreaming. Unless the person is literally tipping over to the side, <laughs> you really don't know. But in martial arts, if your mind wanders, boom, you're hit in the face. <laughs> you're, you're, you're thinking about the new restaurant that's opening up. Oh, I was just kicked in the gut. You're, you are forced to be absolutely present you get <laughs> feedback immediately you are forced to meditate the problem is there as we know there are some people who have not dealt with their own stuff that they're still living with their own shadow and acting out on it and please do not study martial arts with someone who is aggressive it might sound like a like a uh, contradiction it's not if a person is practicing martial arts correctly then they have not only wushu martial arts, but they have wuda, martial virtue. That is absolutely core, fundamental to the understanding, not just my understanding, the general understanding of Chinese martial arts. The martial arts and martial virtue must be combined. And then when you practice martial arts with a teacher who is kind, who is compassionate, who's enthusiastic about what they're doing, who's not trying to express pent-up aggression or, or tolerating aggression among the students. You can spar without being aggressive, certainly without being mean. If you find a genuine teacher, then martial arts becomes as much a path of growth, wisdom, and enlightenment as Qigong or as sitting in a Buddhist monastery or a Taoist monastery. I couldn't agree more. Can you compare katas of karate with tai chi chuan because they seem very similar they're similar but you know I, I really dare not comment on karate since i'm not a practitioner uh when i read funakoshi you know the great original author on karate i felt it was similar to reading a book on tai chi his philosophy of life very very close 
And I, I don't personally like the style of movement in karate. It seems a bit too rigid for my, my personal tastes. Yet at a high level, everyone ends up discovering the same thing. They find out what works. And what works requires whole body involvement and relaxation and learning how to conserve your resources so you don't get tired out within the first minute of a sparring match. That's why I say that even calling something an internal martial art is uh, really not quite correct because what makes an art internal is your own level of advancement in whatever art you're doing. At the beginning level, when you're doing Tai Chi, it could be very rigid. At an advanced level, when you're doing Karate, it could look more like Tai Chi. One of my, actually more than one, I have several students who are very highly placed Karate competitors and uh, they move absolutely beautifully. Uh, I would not, I, I wouldn't say that they had any disadvantage in their, in their way of training. Uh, I think one of the greatest Taiji fighters of all time, who would never certainly not identify himself with Taiji, was Muhammad Ali. Hmm. I mean, talk, talk about being tuned in to another person, whole body power, uh, absolute grace. I think Ali and uh, my other favorite, Evander Holyfield, uh, just extraordinary. Uh, there's a, a beauty there to their movements that as much as externally, it looks completely different from Taiji. I think as a martial art, it's uh, very similar. Yeah. I'm curious in life when you've experienced any sort of hardships, some bad days, bad seasons, how has your knowledge of Chinese philosophy, Taoism, martial arts impacted you and helped you get through those periods? It, it's made tremendous impact because one of the gems in Qigong philosophy is that we can use the physiology to change the psychology. That is, if we are aware of the physical impacts of emotional distress and of trauma, then we're able to track how those tensions are expressed in our bodies. And we have trained through our Taiji, through our regular Taiji and Qigong practice, we trained how to release those tensions. So it's not that you're going to be immune from upset and from tragedies, we all face them. But your physiologic reaction and your tendency to lock the sorrow, to lock the trauma into your body, where it can remain and re-traumatize you even long after the emotional challenge is gone. That's less likely to happen because of Qigong and Taiji training and the wisdom that is inherent in those traditions, such as the you know, Lao Tzu, I said earlier, Lao Tzu says, the sage does not dare to be first. Well, humility is a, a big virtue in Taoism. Not always followed, not always followed by me. But it is our goal, and we need to be vigilant to maintain that humility. How is humility important in regards to your question? 
means having the humility and vulnerability to ask for help. I know this is a little beyond what would be considered classically Taoist, but um, I remember when I had at one point in my life, a, uh, I don't know how I got exposed to it. I had an infection uh, that had migrated from my heart into my hips. I was in a lot of pain. I was near death at one point. And even after I got the antibiotic and after the healing was over and I was back to relatively good health, I felt there was still some other thing going on there. And I went to a very talented therapist and uh, we, she did a visualization where I went into my own body and looked at the areas that had been affected. And she asked me, what were the emotional experiences in my childhood or adolescence or any time in my life that I might see in those structures in my body. And I started reliving and describing memories that were caught, that were still there, almost as though, as though uh, inscribed on my bones. And she would say, well, what do you see here? And what is that part of your body telling you? What is it teaching you? It was wonderful. It was transformative. It, it helped me more fully release things from my past, including my own discomfort growing up, feeling out of place. It's not only that I was physically ill, but I, growing up in Queens, yeah, it was a good environment in one sense, but in another, I felt just, I kept being drawn to nature. I played hooky a lot. My parents would always find me somewhere in the woods or in a park. I felt I was in the wrong place at the wrong time. I think I was right. I think I actually knew that about myself back then when I was a little kid. But that feeling of being different and out of place, it, it created a lot, of, a lot of sorrow because I couldn't relate socially to my classmates. Uh, so I, I revisited some of those old, old things, you know, some 30 years ago, more than 30 years ago, when I had that brief uh, infection. And it was so good to heal not only from the physical side of it, but from the lingering emotional side. So is that Taoism? Well, yes and no. I think the part where it, it relates to Taoism is a realization that we are not superhumans, that everyone has vulnerabilities, that there's yin and yang, that there's positive and negative, and that we need to have the humility to be able to learn from every situation, whether that's easy or difficult, have the humility to learn from every situation. So that's my, you could say it's my personal take. It's Ken Cohen's Taoism. It's my Taoism. But it, it was so important for me because if I had not been willing to have that vulnerability, I never would have learned. I never would have completed that chapter, closed that chapter in my life. Well said. I like that version. Thank you. Now, I know we're going on on time here. I have, if it's all right, I have a couple more questions, but if you, or if we need to... Maybe one more, one more question and uh, we'll wrap up. Okay, well, I'll ask you two and you can decide which one to answer. Either your favorite forms of Qigong or uh, your liking of tea. Well, I think we'd better. Now you got me started. We're going to, we're going to have to do both. <laughs> I thought <laughs> I might trap you in that. <laughs> so let's start with my favorite styles of Qigong. 
in a way, as you learn Qigong, you start to build a, an internal pharmacopoeia. You've, you've got the skills, the medicines that you need for whatever's required at that time in your life. Yet, it's important to have certain methods that you do regularly, lest we dig a hundred wells and none deep enough to strike water. So what are those wells that tap into the source for me? The ones that I do all the time are something called Yitren, Y-I, new word, Q-U-A-N. It is one of the most comprehensive forms of both healing and martial arts that teaches a series of standing meditation postures, of walking and moving exercises that incorporate just about every skill you could find in any martial art, including Taiji, and a complete meditation system, as well as a method of one-on-one -on -one physical therapy. It, it's, a, again, a truly comprehensive method of, of Qigong. So that one, as well as a method called Hunyuan Gong, primordial Qigong, which I learned from Madame Gao, uh, because of its great attention to the energy body, to understanding how energy moves, how it becomes stagnant, why and how it creates disease. Uh, it's for the, for the mechanical skills, I would say Yitran. For the subtle energy flows, I would say Hunyuan or primordial Qigong are my two favorites. And of course, Taiji. I do Taiji trend every day. I love it. It's a global systemic exercise. It's not for this organ or that. It's for your whole being. So, so those, those would be my three answers to that first question. Second question, you want to know about my relation to tea or? Your passion for tea. My passion for tea. Well, let me express it this way. I have a teacup in my hand. I know listeners can't see me, so I'll, I'll help you see me. I have a teacup, and in this teacup, there are actual tea leaves. Where is this tea from? It's from Alishan. Alishan is a beautiful mountain, national park, and scenic area in Taiwan that still has a large indigenous population. Remember, there were original peoples in Taiwan before the Han Chinese arrived there. So this is an important area, both for the Chinese and for the original inhabitants of Taiwan. There are, there's a hiking trail at the top. I've been there. There's a hiking trail where you are walking among 2000 year old cypress trees. Oh, wow. It's unbelievable. In fact, let me tell you this. When I went there last time, you start before, or the way I started, before going on the trail, is a Taoist temple devoted to the god of the pole star, Xuan Tian Shangdi, the high lord of the mystic heavens, <laughs> of the dark heavens, as he's called in Chinese. And the spirit of the pole star is said to be one of the inspirations behind Taiji Chuan. To put it very simply, the pole star is the unmoving pivot of the constellations. It teaches us stillness amidst movement. The from the viewpoint of the Northern Hemisphere, the North Star or Pole Star is the fixed point around which the constellations turn. So I went to that temple, offered my incense, developed that feeling of groundedness and peace, of stillness with emotion, then went on the hike among these 
2,000 plus year old cypress trees with the mist, the morning fog below us. The feeling is spectacular. That is also one of the main tea growing areas. There are numerous tea growing areas in Taiwan and of course in mainland China. But Ali Shan tea is famous among the oolongs. Oolong just means semi-oxidized. Uh, white tea, green tea, oolong tea, black tea, poor tea, they're all from the same plant. They're all from Camellia sinensis. But you know, if you, if you take, a, take an apple, you take a bite out of it, you leave it on a table for 20 minutes, it starts to turn brown. That's because it's interacting with oxygen. It's fermenting a little bit, it's oxidizing. Well, if you control the oxidation process of a tea leaf, you get this incredible range of flavor and aroma. If you were to just pick the green leaf, that's gonna be, and you dry it quickly, that's gonna be green tea. But if it becomes semi-oxidized, that's oolong tea. And the oolong tea will taste different depending upon where it's grown, the care with which you pick it, the elevation of the tea garden, whether it's from a tea garden plantation or grown or picked in the wild, because there are wild tea trees, the age of the tea tree, older tree, deeper roots, more minerals pulled from the soil, more, more dimensionality to the taste and aroma. So all those things are going to affect it as well as the crafting of the leaf. It is a handicraft. A leaf that is rolled or twisted or folded in half will release the flavor and aroma differently than just the leaf that is kept in its, you could say, natural wild state. That's just, I'm just giving you the barest outline. So let's go back to this tea I'm holding in my hand right now. I've put Ali Shan Oolong tea from that, that high mountain place with the cypress trees. I put that in my cup this morning poured hot water over the top. The leaves sink down to the bottom, leaving behind their beautiful color, aroma, and flavor. Now, what is that aroma and flavor? I'm taking a sip, putting myself in the Qigong state, relaxed, good posture, slow, quiet breathing. I'm tracking, sensing, where does the chi, the energy of the tea, go to? This one, let me try it again. This one is going to the region of the chest and then spreading, spreading like sunshine, sending rays of energy and light throughout my entire body. And I see, I can see and sense the land where it was grown. So this must have been grown in one of the very high elevation tea gardens on Alishan. Now, let me tell you, if you've never been to Asia, you can go there. This is the cheapest way to travel there. The cost of a cup of tea, you get a round trip ticket. I'm not, it sounds like a joke. It's actually not a joke. Because if you sensitize yourself to the taste and aroma of a hand and the chi of a hand-picked tea, of a great tea, it will bring you there. And if you ever go there physically, you're going to say, wow, I knew this place. 
I really know that I've been there. It's true. So going back to my tea experience now. Yeah, it's spreading like the sun, spreading those rays of light and energy. And I'm going to get the aroma now. There's definitely young wildflowers with a background of a pine forest. So this has to have been, I would guess, early spring tea. The flowers I'm smelling, a little bit of magnolia, hint of wild rose, maybe some honeysuckle, and those pine forests, maybe they're cypress forests in the distance. So then as you're drinking the tea, each successive infusion will bring out other notes, other dimensions, and basically to truly appreciate a great tea, you will get very similar benefits as doing Qigong and as reading Chinese poetry. It's kind of Qigong and poetry combined. So that's, that's uh, as much part of my path and cultivation as anything else we've discussed. In fact, each morning, I'm usually up by five. I'm sitting outside as the sun is rising drinking tea and just listening to the sounds of nature. And then I do my Taiji, do some of my Qigong, drink some tea again at the end. And then I'm doing interviews like this one or <laughs> answering emails or teaching classes. But tea, tea and Taiji, it's a, it's a great combination. It, it will give you a good life. I am so glad I asked that question. Thank you for that. I can't believe how much you can get from a cup of tea, all that information, it's incredible. And in speaking with Daniel Reed, he shares very similar passion and he, he calls it Qigong and Qigong. And every morning yes. he does he does both Qigong and Qigong. And he also, I love oolong tea, but he's sending me some high mountain Taiwanese oolong tea that he says I have to try. So I'm looking forward to that. I could talk to you for hours, Ken. I, I can't thank you enough for this. Can you please let listeners know where they can find out more about you, your teachings, maybe your tea, whatever there may be? Sure. Thank, thank you for the reminder, because my wife sometimes tells me I'm my own worst business person. I carry everybody, <laughs> else's, everybody else's uh, business cards except my own in my wallet. So uh, you can find me on, on the web. Just go to KennethCohen.com. I've got several different web addresses, but that's the easiest. Just use my name. K-E-N-N-E-T-H-C-O-H-E-N, KennethCohen.com. That will get you to my website. I do have a listing of online programs. I'm teaching regular Zoom classes, offering Zoom lectures as well. You'll see on that same site, there'll be a subheading for tea. And there's a tea catalog. Even if you don't want to order tea, just read the descriptions. You'll get a sense of other ways of evaluating the qualities of tea. And I maintain a blog and different articles. If you go to the contact se section of my website and fill that out, then you can subscribe, you'll be subscribed to a free newsletter that I send out once a month that has uh, new translations 
uh, information about new research that's being done to show the healing benefits of things like Qigong and Tai Chi, updates on my schedule. And I'm also on Facebook. If you do a Google search for Qigong Research Ken Cohen, it should come up right away. It's a rather complicated Facebook address. So I think just do a search and you will <laughs> find it. And I, and I look forward to uh, seeing some of you maybe at a, at a class or a lecture sometime in the future. I would love to do that. Thank you. Yeah, it'd be fantastic. And thank you for doing this. I've learned so much. I've had a smile on my face the whole time. I'm going to go do some Qigong, right? Well, actually, I'll do some Qigong first, and then I'll probably do some Qigong. Yeah, I can't thank you enough for all of your contributions to Chinese medicine, for your translations, your writings on, on Qigong, and just for people in general, what you are offering, the, the way of bringing forth the ancient to help us live in the modern day. It's incredible. So thank you. Thank you. Blessings to all of you. Take care. Thanks for listening to this episode of Pacific Rim College Radio with Kenneth Cohen. For more about Ken and his work, please visit kennethcohen.com. That's K-E-N-N-E-T-H-C-O-H-E-N.com. And check out his amazing books at your local bookseller. If you are interested in studying Chinese medicine, the School of Acupuncture and Chinese Medicine at Pacific Rim College offers world-renowned multi-year programs, including world's first study options combining acupuncture with Western herbal medicine and holistic nutrition. Visit pacificrimcollege.com to learn more. Also, don't forget to check out our online education in Chinese medicine by exploring the amazing course offerings at pacificrimcollege.online, including many courses featuring other guests of this podcast. Sign up for our newsletter to receive special offers on our newest releases. If you are interested in receiving clinical services in holistic nutrition, herbal medicine, and acupuncture and Chinese medicine, the student clinic at PRC provides more than 7,000 annual treatments. Live holistic nutrition and herbal medicine consultations are both available online, while acupuncture and Chinese medicine treatments can be had at our Victoria campus. Free treatment options are available in all areas. Visit the student clinic at pacificrimcollege.com for more information and to book your appointment. If you enjoyed this podcast, share it with your friends and family and give it a five-star rating on whatever podcast app you're using. Thanks for tuning in. Until next time, try your hand at Qigong and then enjoy the bliss of a cupful of oolong tea.